How do we face up to our mortality in this diverse culture? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss mortality and human flourishing in a diverse culture from a religious perspective. We talk with an expert on the works of Ernest Becker and interreligious beliefs. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Dan Lichty. Dan Lichty, Ph.D., Doctor of Ministry, is a professor of social work at Illinois State University where he teaches human behavior. He is trained in academic religious studies, mental health work, and pastoral counseling, and is a licensed clinical social worker. He is the world's foremost authority on the work of Ernest Becker and is the author or editor of 10 books, including his latest, Facing Up to Mortality, Interfaith, Interreligious Explorations, which we will discuss today. He's also an avid amateur folk singer. Here's our interview with Dan Lichty. Dan, welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. Hey, it's good to see you guys again. Nice to be Hi, back. Dan. Hi, hey, Dan. Hey, how you doing, Ken? <laughs> good, just fine. Dan, thank you for being our guest once again. It's a pleasure to have you back on our show. And congratulations on your excellent new book, Facing Up to Mortality, Interfaith, Interreligious Explorations. I enjoyed it. Great. So the Great. subject of this episode is mortality in a diverse culture. Mm-hmm. And let's discuss some of the interesting and important ideas your book engendered for Ken and me. Dan, an important concept you introduce is alienation. What is alienation and how does it apply to our contemporary lives and our relation to our nation or our society? Well, alienation, that has a long history in in social analysis, going back at least to Feuerbach and from Feuerbach to Marx. And then, of course, Freud talked about the whole psychoanalytic tradition and so forth. So it has different meanings in different contexts. But my sense is that what it means overall, or a general summary of it, is the idea of feeling that a part of yourself is lost to yourself. An important aspect of what you value about yourself feels like it's kind of foreign to you, stolen from you in a way sometimes, or is externalized from you. And it's not a good feeling. Let's put it that way. Marx talked about alienation as your work being expropriated from you. Your work, in a sense, is an area to express creativity. But if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, and it's peace rate, and you're being paid for it, in a sense, you're selling part of yourself. And that's alienation as well. Religious alienation, alienation in the context of religion and so forth, that's what goes back to Feuerbach. And Feuerbach talked about our understanding of God as being sort of a reification, a reassembly, you might say, of those aspects of ourself, the better aspects of ourself that we've sort of lost and and therefore we project it onto the sky or however you want to say it. And that's where alienation comes in there. And that's really sort of the stream that I fit into with my work, that stream of thinking about alienation that goes back to Feuerbach and then somewhat reinterpreted through Marx, but then down into sociology As you can tell from the title of my book, I'm very influenced by Peter L. Berger. He had a book called Facing Up to Modernity. And that's actually where I got the title for Facing Up to Mortality. I mean, I was consciously trying to signal a connection there. 
between that aspect of Berger's work and this work of mine. Dan, in the last chapter of your book, written by Merlin Mowry, mm-hmm. she addresses absolutism. Mm-hmm. How does absolutism quell death anxiety? Well, I would say it only quells death anxiety temporarily. Okay. It's not an absolute, but nothing is. But as I understand what Merlin was talking about, we have this desire in response to our awareness of ourselves as weak and inadequate and so forth. That's the whole death anxiety stuff coming in. We have this urge to merge ourselves with, immerse ourselves, be enveloped by that which is solid unquestionably true, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I think she means by absolutism. And absolutism is a mental construct. So obviously it's a paradox to begin with because it's a mental construct of being whole and perfect and solid. But just the fact that it's a mental construct, we kind of have to keep hiding that aspect of it from ourselves because, you know, kind of whistle by and pretend that we didn't see the wizard. Yeah, uh, the curtain. Hurt and hold back kind of thing. Because when you recognize the concept of the absolute is as much a human construction as anything else, then that kind of automatically, in a way, the more you dwell on that, it's just going to undermine its ability to quell death anxiety. To the extent that you can keep pretending that the wizard is actually the wizard, it might be some antidote to death anxiety. But as soon as the curtain's pulled back, it's not anymore anyway. All three of us were raised in different faiths. I was raised Catholic. And I was told very plainly that you were part of the one true religion, Mm -hmm. one holy Catholic apostolic, because it went back to the apostles. So that's as absolute as you can get. Mm -hmm. And it was very comforting, because you knew there was no, no question in your mind. Right. It was reinforced every week, every day when you're in, a kid in school. Right. And that's you're what on I'm winning thinking. Team. Absol- yeah, that's what I'm thinking, absolutism. But yet, when you're talking about interfaith, and here you've got a book with Muslims and Jews and Christians and humanists, whatever you would call Merlin. I mean, how Trekkies. does... Well, <laughs> how, oh God. but how is interfaith then an alternative to that kind of absolutism that we had when we were young and we believed that the religion we had was the be-all and end-all. Well, think of it this way. If there was only one faith that claimed itself absolute, they might get away with it. Right. But when you've got dozens and dozens of competing faiths, each of which claims, no, it's the one that's absolute, It's the one that's correct. It's the one that's right. Now, with the Mennonites, that's what I grew up Mennonite. We didn't so much think that other religions were wrong. We just thought that they didn't have it quite as polished as we do. In other words, ours is the most perfected. It's not that they were wrong, but they were seeing through a glass darkly, whereas we see face to face. The downside of the Mennonite faith, though, the downside in that sense, you could say, well, they were a little more open and that kind of thing. But the downside of that is that in order to be the faithful, man, you had so many restrictions on your life and your thinking and so forth that you spent most of your time wondering if I live up to it. You see what I'm saying? That you get that whole guilt thing about, yes, the faith, they're the polished, but I'm really the rough gem. So it was hard to question anything or recognize in yourself that you're more of a questioner than one of the faithful. So that was the downside of that. 
But anyway, the point is, if there were only one faith that claimed itself absolute and everyone kind of recognized, yeah, they probably are, you know, that kind of thing, they might get away with it. But when we have dozens and dozens of competing absolutes, it doesn't take too much education or exposure to stand back and say, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Like Tevye, you know, he says that's true. He says that's true. They can't both be right. That's true. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so at some level, we also notice that when we have all these competing absolutes, inevitably, that just leads to really unproductive conflict. Argue, no, I'm the most, no, I, mine is right. No, mine is right. No, mine is right. And it doesn't get us anywhere. And well, it gets especially us, gets us into wars and well, that, yeah, out. and if especially when that leads to the level of actual fighting and that kind of thing, we can see that it's really one of the most destructive aspects of the world of the human world. So the whole point of interfaith is to at least make the attempt to try to say, okay, whatever criticism I make of someone else's faith, I have to make that of my own first. And what we're probably aiming towards is an ability to live and be happy and satisfied in life with the recognition that my faith is not an absolute faith. My faith is a faith in whatever, there's good aspects, there's bad aspects. I try to emphasize the good and rid my life or downplay the negative aspects of it. But that's what everyone is doing in every faith. Not how can I convince them that my faith is right and theirs is wrong, but watching them, what can I learn from what they're doing? You know, they're seeing things that I'm not. But the thing that sticks in the back of my head is I understand how absolute belief is an excellent defense against death anxiety. Mm -hmm. As long as you can keep your vision where I grew up, we had Amish, Amish Mm -hmm. who drove horses and you'd have to put blinders Blinders. on the horses so that the cars coming around the side and all wouldn't scare them. Well, in a sense, if if you can put spiritual or intellectual or whatever you want to say, blinders on yourself so that you're just only looking straight ahead at whatever your religion teaches you, maybe it is satisfying. But most of us also think there's something satisfying about taking the blinders off and actually looking at the world. Well, some of that has to do with, are you in an urban environment, or are you in a rural environment? I mean, if you're that's if you're true, in a small but every, town, well, and everybody true. in the town is Baptist or Presbyterian, you've got you know two flavors, chocolate and vanilla. That's it. Yeah, then you have a better shot at saying, "Well, we've got the truth," and those people over there in Sodom and Gomorrah, Las Vegas, and New York, well, they're all sinners and they're damned to eternal hellfire. But we've got it here. That to me is kind of an absolutism that we see in our culture right now, even though we're a diverse culture, we're still kind of segregating ourselves into these beliefs. It was a lot easier to do this in a pre-technical world also. Right. That's what I was going to point towards. Even in the most isolated rural town, you've got television now and you've got the internet now, and there's just no way that you can keep the blinders on. You know, I think I grew up in a typical Midwestern, small town, Indiana. Of that town, I would say about two-thirds when I was growing up, not that way anymore, but when I was growing up, about two-thirds of the town was Mennonite, and the other third was largely ex-Mennonites. In other words, people that were in different groups, but they split off from the Mennonites. And so that was about as, if you want to say it this way, as blinder as you can be. 
But if you go to that town now, it's not much bigger than it was then, but you've got a number of different churches represented. And not only that, but the town has sponsored people of other faiths to come, who turn out to be of other faiths to come and there. And it's much more pluralistic than it was even then. And if you go to the library, I mean, I remember when I was young, if you went to the town library, they didn't call it interfaith, but the world religion section was maybe about this big, a couple of books. <laughs> now it's a good size section. And Here's the again, problem. the internet, all this kind of stuff, yeah. you just can't live that isolated anymore in the modern world. But that's a problem then, isn't it? If your faith is your primary defense against death anxiety, and now your faith is just one of many, and you really have to question, well, how valid is this belief system? Does your defense against death anxiety take a severe blow? And are you exposed to dread without that solid belief that you used to have when I was a kid? Yeah, I think there's no question that in our society in general, simply because of the fact that we rub shoulders either literally or figuratively every day with people who have very different religious and political and other ideologies than we do, and yet they're doing good and they're, they're happy, and we can see that they're great people and all that kind of stuff, and there's no question. We shoulder a larger load of anxiety than people did in earlier times. Now, they may have had their, their own anxieties to shoulder, but I'm talking about death anxiety, that feeling that, well, maybe the world isn't quite as solid as I thought it was, that kind of thing. We shoulder a larger dose of anxiety just because we live in a society in which we know so much about what's going on in the world than people in previous times. And that could be very scary. And it can lead to backlashes. I think we can't say that only people of my religion are good and everyone else is a sinner, but we can certainly say those people are. And we end up with these polarizations where we're looking at people that disagree with us in other areas of life, and we build up fantasies of them being really terrible people and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I can see that even in that hometown that I was talking about when I go back there to visit. When I was young, one of the good things about it was a lot of Mennonites said you shouldn't be involved in politics anyway, but you got to run your town. So you got to have a mayor and you got to have a town council and all that. Some were Republicans, some were Democrat, and there would be good natured chiding, you know, and stuff like that. But man, it's almost like you don't want to even go there with a good natured chide because it could so easily snowball into people being at each other's throats that I would have to say that that's kind of, in a certain way, politics has become our, at least currently, hopefully it's a short-term thing, but politics has sort of become our religion. And we really don't tolerate sinners when it comes to our, our new religion. And I see that on both sides of this thing, or even there's more than just two sides. But I see that with the QAnon type folks. I mean, that's an extreme, but I also see it with my liberal friends are not very tolerant. They are not very tolerant, many of them. You know, they don't want to be around such people. Yeah. To the extent there was a problem in the earlier times of religious intolerance, that's kind of shifted in psychotherapy. We talk about having symptoms, and you can either have a, a resolution of the symptom or it just shifts to something else. And that's what I think's happened here to a large extent. You're not kidding. It has shifted. And you're right. The left and the right let's say a percentage, but a good right. percentage of left right. and right are intolerant of the other. I hear things like, 
well, why would we give Steve Bannon a platform? I go, well, because right. I want to hear what he has to say. This is an important person in this country we find ourselves in. And they're, no, 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 no. Can't have that. You don't have to agree with what somebody says in order yeah. to listen to him and try to learn from him. Right. You try to. Well, and the thing is, you can, give, you. You can yeah. give people a platform, meaning give them time to just ramble, or you can bring them into conversation. Right. I'll have a platform, but have people there who are equally as bright and so forth to make it a conversation instead of a monologue. And yeah. now, of course, some people are very keen. And again, this is both left and right. I could name people on the left, too, that you bring them in for a dialogue and, man, they can turn it to a monologue harangue quicker Instantly. than anything. If you want to say there's a danger, there are people when they come in to talk, that's what they're aiming to do as quickly as they can. Turn it yeah, into they, a monologue harangue. Well, then you've got to have someone with a button. you got to have yeah. someone with a, with a stop button. Right. I mean, that's turn enough, off their that's microphone. That's enough from you. That's turn, enough yeah, from you. Turn off their microphone, restate what the rules of this engagement is, then turn the microphone back on. And it's not going to, you know, either they're going to stomp off in anger. But most people, I think, if they see that and they see that one party is really trying to listen and understand and another party is just trying to harangue, most people have the sensibility to recognize that and make a value judgment about it. Dan, since Steve and I first heard about your book and the subject of interfaith, we've been talking back and forth a lot about it because a lot of our understanding of religion is this thing with death, anxiety, and mm-hmm. and doubt. We all have doubt. Right. So how does interfaith adequately calm that doubt? Well, on the one hand, I would say it doesn't. It's not intended to. It's intended to help you live with the doubt. It's intended to help you recognize that doubt can actually be a positive thing, not a negative thing, and therefore help you learn to live with that doubt. Like when you're feeling the anxiety that that doubt brings about, there are meditative practices, another thing that allow, allow you to just be still and let it wash over you instead of girding up your loins for battle kind of thing. So that's one thing. The other thing is, I would say that there's also something heroic about trying to live the interfaith and not just tolerant, but where you recognize that other people have so much to teach you and you're reaching out for relationship and so forth. There's something about that that's a little bit heroic. And then you're right into the whole heroism thing. And I want to emphasize the point that an interfaith approach to religion and to life in general, it doesn't erase death anxiety. And recognizing your death anxiety is an ongoing project. But there are many people now who are recognizing that you can acknowledge that dealing with your death anxiety is an ongoing project and yet still be fully able to get up in the morning, live your life and reach out to others and learn from others and all that kind of stuff. So in that sense, kind of making a a hero project out of it. I mean, I know some people say, well, what about getting into heaven? Well, if you're concerned about getting into heaven, then you're already so tied into a certain stream of ideology that the interfaith approach is probably going to be pretty foreign. I suppose you could say, well, all religions have some sense of a better world or something like that. And as long as you can see heaven as sort of a symbolic way of talking about a better place to live or something like that, well, then you can say there's an interfaith approach that also sees the value of heaven as a symbol and that kind of thing. But if your concern is strictly a place after life that you're going to go to, that your immortal soul or whatever is going to go to, well, 
maybe you need to do a little more introspection about that. Boy, am I glad we're having this conversation because as I read your book, all these questions were coming up and you're answering them as you talk. As I think this idea that doubt can be a good thing. Doubt is vitally important. Neil Elgy used to speak about doubt yes, uh, brilliantly, eloquently, and it's not an easy thing to grasp, I got to say. Yes, you and know? I would again point to Peter Berger. It was written with a co-author, but it's called In Praise of Doubt. It's just a little book. Yeah. It's written from a sociological perspective, but In Praise of Doubt. Doubt is what keeps you from absolutism. Yeah. Being wow. able to keep that little doubting voice on your shoulder that whenever you think you've got to figure it out, kind of laughs at you and says, oh, yeah, who says? That kind of thing. That what? can be very, very helpful. So you wrote in this book that we're referencing that Ernest Becker suggested that the entire realm of any viable culture is infused with providing plausible pathways for death denial and immortality achievement. In short, all viable cultures are, in this sense, infused with religious power. And cultural mm -hmm. malaise is exactly defined as a situation that occurs when pathways for death denial and immortality achievements are undermined with disillusionment and are no longer seen as plausible by large mm -hmm. numbers of people. How does this, how, this malaise and disillusionment you're talking about, how does it relate to contemporary America and what we're going through right now? Well, when we talk about culture, all cultures, their foundation religious, what we mean by that is that the message all cultures give to their people is we are engaged in a pageant of interaction in this world that has transcending value. It's the larger than life thing that we're all plugged into. And sometimes that's explicitly like if we live by the standards of our society, in a sense, God is smiling at us or whatever you want to say it. But it can also just mean you earn that higher level of respect from others that we crave. I mean, that's really what we crave. And a viable culture is one that gives many, many people lots of different avenues for achieving that. Now, not everyone's going to be the president, but a viable culture gives all of us areas in our life in which we can feel like we're worthwhile. We're on top. We are worthy of respect and that kind of thing. And I think what has happened to some extent in our culture is that we have elevated wealth and power to the point where very few people can really feel like they're measuring up. It's no longer good enough just to be a soldier in the army of God. You've got to be a general in the army of God <laughs> in order to feel like you're worth anything. I think of the difference when I think back on the television shows when I was young, the lifestyle, let's say, of Andy Griffith. Any of us can achieve that lifestyle and be a good person. Starting about, I don't know whether it was in the 80s or when, but I was in Europe for most of the 80s. I noticed it really big when I came back. Then it was all things like Lives of the Rich and Famous. Yep. And the comparable sitcom was, what was that one with the psychiatrist? Uh, Frazier. Bob Frazier. Frazier. Well, Fra oh, you know, Frazier. Bob right, Newhart right, too, right. but Fra yeah. Frazier yeah. is the one I'm thinking about. You have to be earning tons of money to live like Frazier. Yeah, and he, yet had this nice, was being, he had a nice apartment with a view of the Space Needle. Right. And Mercedes cars and all this kind of stuff. And so whereas when we were younger, Andy Griffith is being presented to us as sort of the norm. 
This would be kind of what we expect an American to be able to achieve. Now, all of a sudden, it's exponentially higher than that. And it's hard not to feel like you're not measuring up. And so in that sense, we start to feel disillusioned. Very few of us can make it. Very few of us can do that. And I think with America, another thing that we held on to, no matter what your view on war and so forth, military, I mean, I was brought up in Mennonites, pacifists against military and all that kind of stuff. And yet there was a feeling like we have the strongest military in the world, by gosh. When it comes down to it, there's always that feeling that we won the Second World War. We're the big dog. Right. And when did malaise set in? When we were totally bested by a little country in Southeast Asia, a little band of people in Southeast Asia, if you want to say it that way, totally routed our asses out of there. And we had to deal with the fact that no matter how great we think our military is, we got our asses kicked. And that's the time. If you remember Jimmy Carter with the Malays speech and all that, that's the time that people started feeling disillusioned about, well, maybe this thing of being American isn't quite the, I mean, they wouldn't have put it in death anxiety terms, but I think existentially, that's what we're talking about. Maybe this thing of of just being an American is, doesn't make us quite as special as we thought it did. You're making me think that maybe our exit from Afghanistan, which was messy and certainly no one was standing up and saying, gee, that was a great way to exit Afghanistan, Joe Biden. Well, they're blaming Biden. Well, we were there for 20 years. 20 years, right. I mean, you would think through all these different presidencies, you would think that we would say, oh, okay, this is time to leave. No, no. Because you have to keep the balls in the air. And I think you're you're making a great point. You're saying this exposes you to death anxiety. It exposes us to the lie of our culture that we're somehow the big dogs of the world. And that has an almost religious aspect to it. Being the big dog in the world has an almost religious aspect to it. It's very interesting when you think back. Here I am, a professor, and I'm If I were saying this to my class, I'd be looking out over people that have no memory of this at all. I mean, I'm not teaching kids that when you say Bill Clinton, they think you're talking about ancient history back before they were born. But think of what Reagan did to try to restore the feeling of mourning in America. Well, one thing, you can make money. So that was one thing. But on the military side, we stomped ass in Granada, by gosh. (laughs) Which when you think about it, that's just almost comical. Most people, even then, couldn't have found Granada on a map. The idea that somehow stomping on Granada once again puts us back on top of the heap, that's just so comical. It's like, it's like who was it that said, I think it was Marx, history repeats itself the first time as recapitulation and the second time as farce. <laughs> and that's kind of what, in a sense, if we could say World War II was the creation of history that we want to be proud of, although... Now we're finding that had a whole lot of, especially if you add in the whole dropping of the bomb on Japan and all that, that had all kinds of troubles to it. But, you know, you still hear people say, if there was ever a just war, that was it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then it was kind of repeated again in Korea, but that was a kind of a draw. But when we tried to repeat it again in Vietnam, it turned out to be tragedy. That's what it is, tragedy. And then Grenada was just a farce. Farce. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had basically farcical wars ever since then. It's very interesting to hear that long speech. I only know it in translation, but uh, that long speech that Putin gave the other day, 
And he kept pointing over and over again to what the United States did when they felt threatened. There was no compunction about going into Iraq. There was no compunction about going into Afghanistan. Why then, if we feel threatened, do we not have the right to make the same kind of forward move, if you want to say it that way? You were talking about, quote, dangers that were on the other side of the world. I'm not by any means saying, oh, well, Putin's a great guy or anything like that. What I am saying is that we so often set the precedent that then turns around and bites us in the ass. And we feel so righteous while we're making the precedent. Yeah. And then we get angry as all get out when it comes around and bites us in the ass. Yeah. Dan, on a previous visit to our show where we were talking a little bit about red and blue things, you told us that you had a habit of going into chat rooms online that were populated by people from, let's say, the other team than the one that you're maybe sympathetic Mm -hmm. to. We were very impressed by that, I have to say. I want to ask, were the conservatives in the online exchanges exhibiting disillusionment and disbelief in the plausibility of our society's institutions or traditions and validity, especially regarding COVID? Well, that was before COVID. And that website that I was a member of and you had to join it, as soon as the 20 election was over with, that disappeared. And so I have a sense that that might have been a website that was a place to get people upset and screaming and so forth. And it makes me wonder how many of the people I was interacting with, although I know some of them were so, were actual people, but I wonder how many of those people were actually who they said they were or whether they were sitting in a troll farm somewhere just kind of automatically naysaying things in order to get more people upset. I don't know about that, but I still find anytime I can, I try to find opportunities to speak from the opposing point of view using the very best of perspective from that opposing point of view. And I would have to say that in the last while, I've done probably more being in discussions with liberals and bringing up the point that, well, you know, this thing that the conservatives are saying, that's not something we can just ignore. What can we learn from them and so forth than what was the case before where I was entering in mainly with the alt-right and that kind of thing and bringing up issues there. So I suppose in a way, things have sort of shifted, not mirror image, but kind of close to it. Peter Berger said, when it comes to any ideological issues, you do much more service raising questions within your own camp than you do trying to argue with the other camp. And so I suppose in a way, I've kind of resorted to that here now, raising issues. Just for example, with the whole, the righteousness that I hear, that I get around here from the more left side about vaccinations and masks and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not saying they're wrong, but they're not listening. Everything is just follow the science, the science, the science. Well, science, science changes. Scientists don't know everything. In fact, we're finding out that a lot of the so-called science was people trying to manipulate. Don't tell people that because then if we ever need them to put their masks back on, then it would be harder. So just tell them to keep wearing it. That's the science. Well, it's not the science, that kind of thing. So I guess I've kind of become maybe a a bit of a professional uh, gadfly or something like that, or curmudgeon maybe is the right word, (laughs) trying to bring up the best arguments. And I'm not trying to even convince anybody of anything. I'm, I'm trying to help people see that truth is not all one-sided, that kind of thing. So Get them to think a little bit. Yeah, and I understand if you're a university administrator, you have to make policies. 
But then just say that's what you're doing. Don't try to hide behind. We've reviewed the science and this is what we need to do. No, that's not it. It's that we are a university. We have lots of different kinds of people here coming from all sorts of places. And it would just be more efficacious if we just all wore masks. Make that the basis of your mask rule. Not that if you're a person who doesn't want to wear a mask, it's because there's something evil about you. Or stupid. Or, or stupid, yeah, right. Yeah, you're well, stupid, yeah, person. yeah. Yeah. One of the things that Ken and I have wrestled with over the last few years is the whole terror management theory concept of the rock and the hard place. The rock being absolute certainty in your worldview and the hard place being relativistic. Mm -hmm. And so if we land in the hard place where religions contradict each other and where religion itself is one of many illusions or ways of looking at the world or, or looking at your own life, how do we avoid being doomed to this malaise and disillusionment you're talking about? Well, I might define it a little bit different. I would say when we're talking about the rock and the hard place, we're saying this extreme or that extreme. And I would say that on the one extreme, whether you call that the rock or the hard place, I don't know. You can decide yourself how you want to set up your spectrum there. But on one extreme is where you feel that truth with a capital T is in your possession. And by gosh, your job is to stick to it and try to make everyone else see things the way you do. And on an individual basis, that just makes you an asshole. But on a collective basis, that's where we really get in trouble. Well, it's a very comforting, it's a very comforting it, place to be. Well, is it really when you see the people that live like that? Are they really happy? I don't know that they are. They're angry all the time because all these people, they're not seeing the truth, that kind of thing. Is it really a good place to live? I don't know. They might have some anxieties that they can sort of push into the closet and shut the door and lock it. So that's one side. That absolutist side. And then the other side is maybe, I don't really know anyone like this, although there's some people that maybe come close, where everything is relative. There's no truth. There's no this. There's no that. Whatever you do is fine. You can't live like that either. We're not looking to live in either the rock or the hard place. We're looking to try to find some firm ground, a place to stand that's not this or that. If there's any brick taken out of the absolute side, does that mean everything falls apart? Well, some people are afraid of that. That's where their anxieties are. Or on the other side, is the world really such that we can't affirm any kind of at least tentative and pragmatic truths? So I'd say we're, we're not trying to live in the hard place or the rock place. We're trying to find firm ground. And to me, I think the firm ground, and this is what I think when it comes down to it, this is what every religion at its core affirms every major religion anyway, it affirms two things. One, you are not God. In other words, don't think that you represent God in this world. That's that rock side, where essentially you think God thinks like you do. So that's one thing that I think all religions affirm, including Buddhism, which doesn't have a concept of God, but Buddhism, at least the kind of Buddhism that I'm acquainted with, has this recognition of no self and all this kind of stuff right at its heart, that kind of thing of you are not God. That's certainly part of it. And then another part of it is that what we really would like is human flourishing. We want the world to be a place where human beings flourish. Once we recognize that's our common ground, 
then we can have all kinds of discussion. Well, what do we mean by flourishing? Obviously, there's an economic component, but does that mean that you can only flourish if you've got $8 billion? Why not $9 billion? You, you see what I'm saying? Or recognizing where flourishing in one area actually starts to diminish things in another area. So what we're really trying to find is balancing in our flourishing. We probably would all agree that to some extent, energy consumption is necessary for human flourishing. But does that mean we need to have the kind of energy that's going to cook our planet? There's lots of room for discussion. Spiritually speaking, what is flourishing? Does it mean 20 hours a day of meditation? And if you're not doing that, then you're not flourishing? Or do all people have to worship in exactly the same way to recognize their life as one in which human flourishing is taking place? I don't think so. I think we can all agree that for some people, they need this and other people, they need that. And as long as what they're doing is leading them to be better people and have healthier communities, healthier in the broad balanced sense, and then therefore the healthier collective, even beyond community and so forth, then those are good things. And even then, on that level, it's not that any one approach has all the answers. And therefore, no matter what your approach is, you should be open, at least, to looking at what, well, what are other people doing and what can we learn from that? That's beautiful. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, That's what human flourishing is. I think human flourishing entails certainly the basics, you know, the, the whole Maslow hierarchy of needs and all that. I mean, we have the basic needs and you can't talk about human flourishing if people are deprived of basic needs. But then on top of that, when we get to the higher levels, then I think that some kind of exposure to education, reading, music, those kind of aspects of culture are certainly part of human flourishing that we would want to have for everyone if possible. And even if we all agree that human flourishing is what we're after, we're still going to have lots of variation within that. And that variation can be creative and we can be building each other up instead of just trying to tear each other down because they're not doing it the way we think it should be done. I'd just like to say, you said a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I've presented this in conversations with people, I get two substantive, I would say, two objections to the idea of having our highest good be human flourishing that I think are worthy of attention. One is just the skeptic that says, well, why human flourishing? Why shouldn't I just make what's good for number one, good for me, be the highest good? Well, I would say, okay, you can do that. But two things, from a human point of view, it's really cutting yourself off. I mean, that's really kind of the most strongly anti-humanist thing you can do is just say, to hell with everyone else. What's good for me is good for me. From a theological point of view, from a religious point of view, that's idolatry at its highest. You're making yourself God, essentially. Even if you're only living at the level of, you know, a Chevy and a rental space for your to live in, if your attitude towards that is whatever's good for me is and everyone else be damned, that's really putting yourself at the acme of you might say the world's hierarchy. And that's really the essence of idolatry, trying to take the place of God. So that's how I would answer this. The other object uh, objection that I think is substantive is saying, well, that speciesism is the word that's used why the human species above other species. And again, I would say there, my answer there would be, well, I'm not sure that we can ever get totally beyond speciesism. 
I think that part of human flourishing is going to involve care for other species and care for the environment in which other species live along with us. It's care of our environment, but it's also care of other species' environment. I don't feel that we're flourishing while we're carrying on slaughter, this kind of industrial animal slaughter. You could say, well, it's good for us because we get cheap meat, but that's a really, really truncated view of flourishing. Flourishing, when we're able to see ourselves in others, then we're also more able to see ourselves in other species as well and recognize that in a sense, we sink or swim together. And that's what I would say about that. I think that if the question were between the extinction of that species or a little bit of good for the human species, wouldn't human flourishing say that we should take the human stuff and let the other species be damned? Well, no, I don't think so, because I think it redounds back on us. I'm not for using animal research, for example, for cosmetics and things like that. But if we're talking about real serious diseases and that kind of thing, I don't take an absolute view against animal research and that kind of thing. I think that we can recognize that, in a sense, what's good for our species is going to inevitably take some precedent over the treatment of maybe individuals of other species. On the other hand, I would just keep emphasizing that idea that we all are in this together, including our species with other species. And if we lose sight of that, if we pursue human flourishing to the point that we lose sight of the brotherhood or siblinghood or however you want to say it with other species, we've actually diminished ourselves, not enhanced ourselves. We're having a a wonderful conversation here with Dr. Dan Lichty author of Facing Up to Mortality, Interfaith, Interreligious Explorations. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a conversation with Dr. Dan Lichty about religion, interfaith, and a whole wealth of other related subjects especially how it relates to our modern-day society. And all of it fascinating. In his deathbed interview with Sam Keen, Ernest Becker said, quote, Beyond the absurdity of one's life, beyond the human viewpoint, beyond what is happening to us, there is the fact of the tremendous creative energies of the cosmos that are using us for some purpose we don't know, end quote. How do we know that the creative energies of the cosmos use us purposely or randomly? What I would say about that is that we can see that there's lots of creative force going on that we don't direct. In other words, there's a lot of creative force in the, not only in the universe, but even on our own planet. There's a lot of creative force going on that we aren't in charge of. And in fact, we are the result of especially if you look at things from an evolutionary perspective and so forth, we are the emergence of that, of that creative force, creative forces, not the director of them and certainly not the author of them. But as you move outside our own planet, we can see that those forces are, are there as far as we can see. I mean, that's what I love about Neil deGrasse Tyson's stuff. I don't pretend to understand astrophysics, but man, you can't watch his stuff without just being awed by all that's going on in this universe 
And for human beings to think that somehow we're the top of the heap or whatever, it starts to look about the same as thinking that we've proved our military power by stomping on Grenada. I mean, it just becomes sort of a farce. At some point, the absurdity of that is going to hit you in the face. So recognizing that there's all kinds of creative force in this universe and even on this planet that we don't control and that we were not the author of, and in fact, we are the product of, that's kind of a dethroning perspective. We like to feel like we're sitting on our little throne conducting everything. You know, we're the executive power. But when you look at it from that perspective, you can't help but get off the throne, so to speak, to come down off your throne and say, you know what? I don't know what's going on here. I mean, we may not be the center of anything. We may just be a little piece of something. Maybe what's really going on in this universe has so little to do with us. We're just sort of a byproduct of these forces that in this particular environment, they produce this kind of planet or whatever. But it's really not at all central to the actual drama of the universe. Again, I don't know that that's true, but it helps you keep humble to always be reconsidering that possibility. And it's like in religion, we talk about God. Well, we don't know what God is. We don't know what creative force of the universe is. The only God we can know is the God that we've been able to imagine, which by definition means it's a human construct. It's an imaginative construct. It's something within that we've created from the bottom up. And we still can have intimations that that points towards something, but we don't know what it is. If you think you can define it, then you've misunderstood it. And that's kind of the thoughts that come to me as when I'm thinking about Becker and all this stuff, even human flourishing and all that kind of stuff. Even if we're able to have human flourishing on this planet, we start to get along peacefully with each other. Life becomes really something. We can feel proud of that, but that may only be one little brick in a much bigger building. It's not to say that it's not important just as each brick is important, but the idea that even that is what the universe is about is kind of an inflated view of things, don't you think? Yeah, but then, I mean, how many people in this world have your perspective? Very, very seven. Seven. Uh, Well, that's, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. That's the irony because, you know, I've been saying that the problem with absolutism is then you think you have to make everyone agree with you. And so when you say that to me, it's like, well, don't worry. I'll make them agree with me as soon or, you know, at some point. (laughs) But you see the difference if you can laugh about it, then if you feel that your purpose in life rises and falls with whether you're able to convince slash force people into agreeing with you. I'm not trying to force anyone to agree with me. I'm just putting my ideas out there. And I say, give these ideas some consideration and some of it you keep, some of you throw it, but it's helping you live a more satisfied life and so forth. Great. And if not, well, okay. But to live with that uncertainty, to live without knowledge, foolproof knowledge that you have a purpose, the universe is intentional and has a plan and you have a purpose and that gives your life meaning. And I don't mean to like disparage that. I'm saying that's where most people are at. They're saying, what is my purpose? Look at the Lex Fridman, who's one of the most brilliant podcasters around. And he ends each podcast asking his guests, what's the meaning of life? And when I hear that, I go, what the hell are you? What are you asking him? (laughs) 
Yeah. What kind of question is that? But I can see where he is just struggling with that question. Yeah. You know, what's the purpose? Yeah. What's the meaning? And it's a 50-50 chance that there is no meaning. It's a 50-50 chance there's no purpose. Well, I mean, it is a, there's a 100% chance that there's meaning, even if the meaning is that there's no meaning. <laughs> or that you right? make your own. Yeah. You know, much better. You know, my favorite podcast or interviewer, I should say, other than you guys, of course, is that Ezra, Ezra Klein. And he always ends his with, what are three good books you'd recommend to people? That's how he ends each one of his of his interviews. And I'm not saying I've gone and read every one of those books, but I've read, well, I can't even say I've read them, but I've ordered <laughs> a lot of <laughs> books on their way. About <laughs> They're on my shelf for after I retire. But I think that's true. We all grasp for something solid. But again, I think that it's more realistic given the parameters of our existence. It's much more realistic to grasp for something firm than for something solid. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Something that's going to support us. We might still feel a little tippy, tippy tippy. here and there. Yeah. A little, put this foot down and it gives way a little bit. You know, my daughter's looking at houses and the houses in her price range are ones where many of the floors, as you walk across them, you can feel give here and there. I've been going and helping her look at houses and stuff. And that's kind of like recognizing given the parameters of our existence, there's going to be give, there's going to be places where it doesn't always feel so solid. But what we should seek, what we can ask for is some feeling of firmness, but not rock solid. You see what I'm saying? When we're talking about these kind of things. And then that's just recognizing that's the best we can get. If we try to insist that no, only that which is absolutely rock solid is worthwhile then we either do that by inflating what's firm and insisting, no, 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 it's solid, it's solid. Or we're never in a place where we're at all satisfied or happy or content with what we have, with what is given to us. And to some extent, that does define the human situation. We always want more. And when we finally achieve that more, then pretty soon that's not good enough for us. And I think that that's at least in some way, also connected to this whole death anxiety thing, because no matter what we're given, no matter what we achieve, it doesn't give us the promised immortality that we thought it was going to give us. You see, I think that's just part of the human predicament. I think that's a little bit, at least partially, what Becker was pointing towards in that quote that you just read. I think that it's great to talk about the human predicament, human nature, the whole world. But Ken and I are kind of focused on the country we're in right now, the society Mm -hmm. we're in right now, which Mm -hmm. is a wreck. The wheels are coming off. And we look for reasons. We look for explanations. And one of them that we've come up with is that we're relativistic. And that leads us to, to the malaise, to the disillusionment we've been talking about. That leads us to a place where We don't have the surety to say, I'm standing on a rock here, because all around you are people telling you, well, you're a flyover person. You're a redneck. Oh, no, you're a sinner. You you don't understand. And we're just bombarded everywhere you turn. You're bombarded with this notion that you don't know what's going on. You don't know. 
how do you then deflect the dread of your inevitable mortality when you're in a society that unless you're a trillionaire or you've achieved some amazing things or you have power, well, if you're just a peasant, but you're a peasant without the immortality that the church guaranteed you in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. Now, what is your immortality? What have you got? You're in this relativistic culture that leaves you hanging. I think that's what we've been trying to get at here. Interfaith, well, faith was always the, the key to that defense against death anxiety. And it was certainly you know, one of the main, it was one of the major pillars undergirding the sense of solidity. And now those pillars are starting to shake a bit. That doesn't mean necessarily that, yeah, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's not a lot of stuff we can still learn from and so forth, but it does for many people, we've recognized that a lot of that solidness, rock hard place, Jesus is the rock and all that kind of stuff that we thought we knew and experienced. And we did. We're starting to see that now, recognizing that that was kind of in a way, a little bit of an illusion. And always was a little bit of an illusion. And the reason it seemed plausible is because we mainly rubbed shoulders with people that in one way or another sort of reinforced it. And so it seemed like everyone thinks this way. And as we moved into a much more, especially as communication technology and so forth, put us in face-to-face touch with different people all over the world that don't share those beliefs, we can have two reactions. One is to sort of hold our ears and say, no, 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 no. Anytime anything's coming in that would have us be questioning what we've been taught. No, 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 no. So like a kid does, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. You know, that kind of thing. Just keep our ears stopped up. And the other thing we can do is recognize, well, okay, if that stuff wasn't so as solid as I thought it was, then what can I learn? Not trying to have an absolute firm foundation anymore, but have recognized that a rock solid foundation, no, but a firm foundation, that is something that's something that allows me to live a life of joy and meaning is as good as I get. Then in a sense, recognizing that relativism to that extent, at least can be something that opens us up to more of what life has to give us. I mean, when you think about it, it's just pretty much of a miracle that we're all here. We're alive. I just feel like life itself has so many gifts it wants to give us, and we're just not open enough. We limit ourselves so that we can't accept those gifts and deflect them. But if we can start to learn to open ourselves up to the mysteries, then those gifts can come pouring in. And we find that that kind of life is actually more satisfying than the one that where we thought we had absolute truth and didn't have to worry about the vulnerabilities and all that kind of stuff. Merlin Mowry wrote, absolutism is the strategy we use to assure ourselves of our own righteousness Mm -hmm. and to justify the degradation and destruction of those with whom we differ. And she notes three religious illusions, absolute transcendence, cosmic heroism, and absolution of guilt. Is there no absolute truth in a relativistic culture like ours? And how can we expect absolute transcendence? Yeah, I don't think we can. I don't think there is absolute truth. If one group or another 
has a hold of absolute truth, we can't know which one it is. It's like there may be a wild card somewhere, but no one knows in whose hand it is. And so we have to go on the assumption that each of us has a little piece of the thing, maybe. And that even if you put all our pieces together, it wouldn't add up to what absolute truth actually is. It would just be a little reflection on our planet, maybe, of that absolute truth, that kind of thing. We need to stay humble. And that's that's kind of the aspect having to do with the cosmic heroism again, too. Everybody wants to rule the world. What was that song? You met everyone. But but the fact of the matter is, if you have a model of cosmic heroism such that anything less than ruling the world is not quite making it, well, you know, you got a problem. But we can all be cosmic heroes in a sense in our own little sphere just by being kind to each other. There's a good we sing it in relation to to the prayer for the sick in temple, but it's called the Misha Barak. And there's a line in there that I just love that it says, help us find the courage to make our lives a blessing. Now that's pretty, you know what I'm saying? That's pretty, Wow. help us find the courage, not to rule the world, so to speak, just so that if when I die, people look back and say, his life was a blessing or her life was a blessing. That's more than enough. That's the gift. That's the gift of life being taken in and then passed on to others, that kind of thing. And that kind of a vision is one that's, I don't want to say it's easily achievable. It's an ongoing struggle, but at least that's something that's appropriate to our station. Let's put it that way. That's something that's appropriate for a mortal, a thinking, a thoughtful, but mortal species to reach for. Let us find the courage or help us find the courage to make our lives a blessing. And even then, when we're talking about help us find, I mean, that's sort of like imploring God, but really, along with imploring God, we're really imploring each other. You all, my brothers and sisters, help me and I'll help you find the courage to make our lives a blessing. Does that make sense? I don't know. That's a great thought. It makes perfect sense. Here's the And you'll find that in every religion. That's the point. You do. Let me just get rid of this nagging thought that's still there in the back of my head. And that is what you're presenting is beautiful. It's relativistic in a very good way. It's Mm -hmm. a, a wonderful way to live. My question is, is it an adequate defense against death anxiety? Because I got to tell you, Ken and I wrestle with that question all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's the question that I keep coming back to. It sounds wonderful. And I hope that I can be that person you're talking about. At the same time, I yearn for that certainty, that absolute certainty that's Mm -hmm. that's gonna say hey when you die you're going to heaven you'll be with the saints you'll be with your parents it's gonna be wonderful and i just can't i just can't buy into that fantasy Mm -hmm. how do you deflect the death anxiety that we all have well i don't think we can deflect death anxiety to the extent of erasing it or extinguishing it it's part of who we are as human beings in fact If we really extinguished our death anxiety, we wouldn't be human anymore. And now I'm not saying we can't have moments where it's not impinging on us. This is what Chiksek Mechath called flow, where you're so into what you're doing that 
all those existential kind of anxiety thoughts and so forth kind of disappear. But but and then they come flow, back. Flow works. Yes. Yeah. It's and temporary. They, but they, yes. Right. But it's temporary. And I would just say embrace a life where you know you're going to have death anxiety. And sometimes that death anxiety can be pretty acute. And then you can learn to cultivate practices such as meditation or prayer. I mean, for me, just when I'm just sitting down with a guitar and just strumming some chords, you know, it's interesting at those times how often I go to the old hymns and sing about stuff that I don't really believe is true, but you know, (laughs) Jesus is a rock, hallelujah, and all that kind of stuff. Then you laugh. (laughs) Sounds like it's distantly related to fake it till you make it. In a way, in a way, and then you can smile at yourself, give your own self a wry smile and say, you know, you who are out there telling everyone about death anxiety, don't think that you're above it or anything like that. You're not exactly, but other you're not people, immune. right. For other people, it may be going out and shooting some baskets. We all have our things that we do to take that nervous energy that is basically the death anxiety peeking through and find ways to dissipate it. The way I say it is allow it to flow over us and not a reactive, frantic kind of a feeling like somehow I've got to do something to get rid of that. Just let it flow. Just be easy with life. Let it flow. Think about the people you love. Dan, a minute ago, you were talking about how all the religions have certain ideas. And Merlin Maori notes that despite that, there are, quote, striking differences among the religions themselves. And I want to ask, can the different religions be joined in an interfaith, interreligious exploration, what you once called pluralism, without weakening the effect of each other? Well, to me, that kind of is a way of asking a question, what's better to dive really deep in one pond or to swim at the surface of a lot of ponds? And you can make arguments for either one. What was that? The fox and the hedgehog? That thing, what was that, Isaiah Berlin that talks about there are those scholars that dig really deep in one topic, or there's those that know a lot about a lot of different topics, that kind of thing. Each one has its place. I don't think that if you're burrowed in deep in one tradition, that's going to mean that you're ipso facto not open to the truth of other traditions, because one of the things that happens, the deeper in you dig, the more the you reach that level at which they all kind of come together anyway. You see what I'm saying? So some of the most exemplary people in what I call an interfaith approach to life are monks and priests. Wow. Or nuns. And it's not like they're ex-priests and and nuns. They, in pursuing their religion ever deeper, they're no longer at all threatened by truth coming from somewhere else, but rather see it as a blessing to add to what they know. You see what I mean? Yeah, they welcome it. Exactly. With open arms, seek it out. And so when I've been in various interfaith settings, there's people whose background, they come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And many of them are in various orders or they have various ordinations or they have various positions within the institutions of specific religions and so forth, but that doesn't at all, I would say, make them less interfaith. In fact, the deeper they get into their own stuff, the more they come to recognize the truth of other 
points of view as well and start to incorporate it into their probably one of the largest number of people, if we'd say that way, single group of people, identifiable number that practice Buddhistic kind of meditation are monks, monks and priests and nuns. They're very Catholic, but they have recognized that this practice is something that really adds to the spiritual life as we're pursuing it within the Roman Catholic tradition or whatever it be. I think Protestants, for example, I'm painting big brush here. Protestants tend to be a little more intellectual. It's less experiential and ritualistic and more preaching, you know, and that kind of thing. But even that kind of approach, the deeper you get into it, the more the circle comes around to other approaches rather than take you away from other approaches, if that makes sense. It does. Dan, I can't do a podcast on interfaith without mentioning a now famous interview between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell called The Power of Myth, which was shown on PBS television in the late 1980s. And Moyers commented to Campbell, and I'm paraphrasing, far from undermining my faith, your work in comparative mythology has liberated my belief from the cultural prison to which it had been condemned. And Campbell responded, it liberated my own. I know it's going to do that for everybody who really gets the message. That was transformative in my life, hearing that. And I just want to ask whether you're familiar with that interview and whether it had any impact. And are there any parallels between Campbell's teaching and the ideas in your new book? Yeah, I have watched that interview. And it also came out as in printed form in a book of Bill Moyers interviews, you know, or something like that. I mean, what was the name of that show that Bill Moyers used to have? It was a weekly show. I was a dedicated listener, uh, you know, watcher of that show. It was like, I don't know, Bill Moyers presents or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, I I had actually been acquainted with Campbell's work long before that. And I I think that Campbell has had a positive impact. I understand that to some extent, and Campbell scholars will argue about this, to some extent, Campbell thought that monotheism kind of came in and was the bull in the China closet. We had this beautiful world of myths and monotheism, meaning basically the Jews came in and destroyed it all. And so he gets charged with anti, if not anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism and so forth. I'm not as convinced about that as maybe some people are. I think anybody can read his work to their own benefit. And I don't think it's inherently destructive of monotheism, although I do think that it will open your mind a little bit. Even if you believe in one God, if that one God is all things to all people, then reading Campbell kind of opens your mind to ways God has been to some people at some times and places that is very different than anything you've ever thought of before. And so if you can rest easy, if you can rest secure in the concept of God as all things to all people, one God, all things to all people, then you don't need to feel threatened by knowing that that some people experience God in very different ways than you do. And in fact, you can learn from that. Your experience of God can be expanded by becoming better acquainted with the way that other people have experienced God. Now, that's a different kind of monotheism than the idea that our God is the only true God and all that kind of stuff, and all other gods are idols. I don't think that's true. But monotheism in and of itself, I don't think is destructive to the point of view that 
Campbell was putting forward. I think it's more a way of kind of unifying all that stuff. In fact, Campbell's myths point out in all kinds of different directions and monotheism kind of brings them back together. If you want to say it that way. Yeah, exactly. But just looking at our society where we find ourselves today, it just seems that we're living in an era of disillusionment and disillusion can mean disappointment, but it can also mean the previous illusion that you had has been exposed. Mm -hmm. So you're disillusioned. Is that at the heart of the weakening of our society's traditions, our beliefs, our values? It just seems like the whole thing is up for grabs right now. And I think a big part of that is the religious part, our sacred illusions that our culture relied on for so long that defended us against death anxiety, they're all in question. How do you react to that thought? Well, I think that's true, but there's nothing we can do to change that. In other words, if we could all just collectively stamp our feet and close our ears to reality, that wouldn't help either. We live in a pluralistic world, and whatever meaning and forward movement and positive direction we are going to find is going to have to be found within that context of all of us learning how to live with each other, of all of us learning how to speak your truth in a way that doesn't condemn someone else's truth, and in fact is open and and honestly seeking to learn from the other's truth. Now, I don't know if you know, Becker was pretty pessimistic about the human species. He thought that our technological, our ability to destroy ourselves was so ahead of our spiritual development that we may be a doomed species. We may, in the end, we may not be able to change that direction that someone in the end is going to say, fuck it, I'll just bring the house down on everything rather than have to admit that my point of view is wrong. I think we're seeing some of that in our country today. Even though we live in a democratic society, a democracy is supposed to be the way that we all get some of what we want, but also means you have to give. I mean, compromise is like the highest state, if you want to say it that way. Now, it's a compromise that keeps moving, but in a democratic society, compromise is actually what we're aiming for. And we've gotten to the place now where there's a lot of people, and not only on one side, it's not all on one side of the divide, who are really seriously contemplating the idea that what would be better? If I can't have the whole loaf, wouldn't it be better just to bring the house down? Oh, yeah. And And you're absolutely right. It's on both sides. Yeah. Right. And that's really dangerous. And that was the basis of Becker's pessimism. Maybe this is where faith comes in if we want to talk about faith. But I keep thinking, I just can't give in to that. I have this vision of human flourishing. And in my own little ways, I have to keep doing what I can. In my daily life, I do what I can to make my life a blessing, not a curse. But the other thing you said earlier, you talked about humility. Ken and I have been talking about humility for about a year. Humility and gratitude. Yeah, yeah. I remember that's what we talked about last time. Yeah. 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 And we interviewed Pellen Kessebeer about it and she was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I love that interview, but you're showing us a humility in yourself that I think other people 
could learn from and embrace. If everyone could just use me as their model for humility. <laughs> there you go. go. And carve your likeness on the Mount Rushmore while we're at it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this one's easier, but, you know, a lot of people uh, criticize us, or I'll just say for me, because of my interest in Ernest Becker. And they're like, why does it all have to be death and gloom and darkness and hopelessness? Anyway, we try at the end of each of each episode to look for hope. So our question is, where in your interfaith, interreligious explorations have you found hope? Well, I find a lot of hope in cultivating those practices in my personal life. I'm certainly no model meditator or anything like that, but they are religious practice, prayer, meditation, just being quiet. And combine that with some other things like sitting down, playing guitar and so forth. But I do know that you can let death anxiety go over you like a wave and wash away. So that's one thing that gives me hope. Another thing that gives me hope is that I see in other people that they're also able to deal with, maybe they don't understand it as death anxiety because they haven't read Becker and all that kind of stuff. And But in whatever way, they have the same feelings that I call death anxiety, the same experiences, and they have found lots of creative ways to deal with that and still live lives of joy and happiness and a blessing to others, that kind of thing. When I see that, I try to notice it and learn from it because maybe some of the things they're doing might be helpful to me. So that's another thing. And then I just think, I don't know, maybe this is that residual sort of enlightenment liberalism kind of thing, but I still can't shake the feeling that humanity as a whole is moving towards something. And I can't imagine that those creative forces are just moving us towards a cliff. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But even if I recognize the possibility that that may be what's happening, because who says we're the acme? Those big forces out there, maybe they've already learned from us what they want to learn. And now this experiment has just planned itself out. And so the important things that these forces of creativity were trying to learn from this human species, they've already learned. And just like the Petri dish is still active, even though the experimenters have already gotten out of it what they want and they moved on, maybe that's what we are. And we are just aiming for a wall. But wouldn't it be cool? You know, you hear this every once in a while. Let's say someone who's working in, I think Jonas Salk was kind of this way. I mean, maybe those stories are just myth, but it's like he happened on penicillin by accident. He was doing some kind of experiment and it either worked, it didn't work. I don't know what, but then he came back and said, Whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And that's how he came across penicillin. So even if the creative forces of the universe are done with our human species, they've already learned from us what they want, what's important from their point of view. And now we're just kind of the Petri dish that's playing out. It's like, wouldn't it be cool if they came back at some point and said, Whoa, wait a minute. Look at this. There we really was they, something to this species. They, we thought they were just going to hit a wall, but, but look at this, what they're doing. So even then, maybe it's what Otto Ronk called negative will, you know, but even then, there's something in me that still wants our species to flourish. And I don't know if we're proving anything by that or not, but in terms of cosmic meaning and all that. But just for us, I think that's a goal we should really 
have human flourishing. I'm not saying I have the absolute definition of what that is, but it's a goal that we can have a sense of forward movement, and that's going to entail discussion and give and take and all that kind of stuff. Like I say, maybe that's the faith thing. You say it's 50-50. It might have meaning, might not have. Well, I find that I can't live on the no meaning side. I have to at least throw my, what little influence I have, I have to throw it on the side of human flourishing. And if it turns out that that was all in vain, it's no big deal. We're all going anyway. Vaguely related to Pascal's wager. Exactly. I was thinking that's exactly what I was thinking. Pascal comes right back to mind. If it turns out that I was wrong, well, we hit the wall. But if it turns out that I was right, then I can live in the knowledge that in my own little way, whatever it is, I was putting my finger on this side of the scale, not that side of the scale. You did your part. Yeah. It's not that I expect to get some kind of cosmic reward for that or anything like that. I know I'm going to die. I'm getting closer every day. And I know that I'll be dead and gone and whatever. But I do try to think in terms of generations. That's also something that comes from different from religious traditions. The Native Americans talk about about acting in the present for the benefit of those seven generations out or something like that. At least one stream of Native American spirituality. Judaism also encourages you not to think in terms of your actions as strictly cost, benefit, reward, and punishment on Judgment Day, but rather in terms of the future of your descendants and so forth. There's a great story that's told in Judaism about this old man who's planting an olive tree or something like that, and he's out in the hot sun, and the, and a guy comes along, you know, young kid, and know it all, and says, listen, you know that an olive tree isn't going to bear any fruit for 30 years. Do you really think, old man, you're going to? And he says, other people planted the trees that I have enjoyed, and now I am planting the trees for others to enjoy. And that's just a wonderful. That's awesome. That, that's not nihilism. It's no. relativistic in that sense, but it's not nihilism by any means. Beautiful. It's a firm foundation. It's not a rock solid foundation, but it's a firm foundation. Dan, thank you. Folks, we've been having this incredible conversation with Dan Lichty on interfaith, interreligious discovery and exploration, and all the related subjects that we could possibly imagine. And Dan, thank you once again for an incredible, incredible interaction and conversation. It's just been great. Well, I really appreciate the invitation, and it's great to see you guys. Yeah, yeah, man. Too. When you. we can travel again. Huh? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, right. indeed. Yeah, Very good. Thank you. All right. Thank you again, Dan. It's awesome. Right. Ken, what are your takeaways? Well, Steve, as you and I have discussed, many of Dan's ideas bear repeating. Oh, yeah. The first idea from his book that we asked him about was alienation. It's the idea of feeling that a part of yourself is lost to yourself. And that idea really hit home for me. Yeah, yeah, that's a powerful one. An important aspect of what you value about yourself feels like it's kind of foreign to you, stolen from you in a way sometimes, or is externalized from you. Dan says it's not a good feeling, and I can attest personally to that assertion. Well, it describes the state of many of us from the industrial age to our current information age. At the same time, Dan said, politics has sort of become our religion, and we really don't tolerate sinners when it comes to our new religion on both sides of this thing. Or even there's more than just 
two sides. Our society has become obsessed with politics and its heretics. Yeah, amen to that. I really like when he talked about the concept of doubt. He says that doubt is what keeps us from engaging in absolutism. We all have doubt, as our friend the late Neil Elgy was fond of saying, doubt is an essential part of being human. And Dan applies classic Becker ideas to our society's present malaise. He said, what we expect an American to be able to achieve, now all of a sudden it's exponentially higher, and it's hard not to feel that you're not measuring up. And so in that sense, we start to feel disillusioned. Yeah, then Dan got into the heart of his message when he said, We want the world to be a place where human beings flourish. As long as what they're doing is leading them to be better people and have healthier communities, healthier in the broad, balanced sense, even beyond community, then those are good things. If we all agreed that human flourishing is what we're after, we can be building each other up instead of trying to tear each other down. That's a great idea, human flourishing. Isn't it? Isn't it? I love that. Yeah. And this notion of flourishing has more than one application. Dan said, flourishing is when we're able to see ourselves in others, when we're also more able to see ourselves in other species as well, and recognize that in a sense, we sink or swim together. When we lose sight of the brotherhood with other species, we've actually diminished ourselves, not enhanced ourselves. Great idea. Isn't it? Dan has a humble and humbling view of humanity. He said, there are all kinds of creative forces in this universe, and even on this planet, that we don't control, and we're not the author of. He said, we may not be the center of anything. We may just be a little piece of something. Maybe what's really going on in the universe has so little to do with us, we're just sort of a byproduct of these forces. We may not be the center of anything. Maybe not. Wow. Yeah. So then we got into the whole concept of God. And I have given up my belief in the God of my childhood. But I have to say, I'm intrigued by Dan's mature notion of God. He said, the only God we can know is the God that we've been able to imagine which by definition means it's a human construct. It's an imaginative construct. It's something within that we've created from the bottom up. And we still can have intimations that that points towards something, but we don't know what it is. <laughs> I think this is unlike any sermon I've ever heard, and I, like, I, I really like its honesty. It's a really mature way of looking at the subject. It is. And practical. And practical. Dan looks at his own mortality and legacy with similar honesty. If, when I die, people look back and say, his life was a blessing, that's more than enough. That's something that's appropriate for a thoughtful but mortal species to reach for. Let us find the courage, or help us find the courage, to make our lives a blessing. On the all-important subject of mortality, Dan said, I don't think we can deflect death anxiety to the extent of erasing it or extinguishing it. It's part of who we are as human beings. In fact, if we really extinguished our death anxiety, we wouldn't actually be human anymore. 
This is a very wise way of looking at things. Isn't it? So we can deflect death anxiety, but we can't extinguish it. Exactly. Uh, Dan concluded, we live in a pluralistic world, and whatever meaning and forward movement and positive direction we're going to find is going to have to be found within that context of all of us learning how to live with each other, of all of us learning how to speak your truth in a way that doesn't condemn someone else's truth, and in fact is open and honestly seeking to learn from the other's truth. Profound words for the 21st century. Agreed. Important ideas, Steve. Yeah, and a lot this time. Yes, sir. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for your usual outstanding inspirational conversation. And for your generous compliments. Yeah, yeah, much appreciated, Dan. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash the hub important ideas. We are 100% listener supported. And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, now on YouTube. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.